Welcome to QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm your host, Kate Joyner. I'm excited today to welcome the chief of our QUT tribe, Vice-Chancellor Margaret Scheel. Professor Scheel joined the university this year as its third vice-chancellor and first female VC. She came to QUT from the University of Melbourne, where she served as provost. Professor Scheel has had a distinguished career in research and higher education leadership. She was notably appointed as the first female professor of chemistry in Australia and has worked to progress the success and recognition of women in science and engineering. Professor Scheel was CEO of the Australian Research Council and she has been a member of the advisory board for Coursera, which is a platform for online delivery of university programs. She's also been a member of the Prime Minister's Science, Innovation and Engineering Council. In 2017, Professor Scheel was made an officer of the Order of Australia for her distinguished service to science and higher education. So welcome, VC. Thank you for having me. May I call you Margaret? Absolutely. <laughs> My mother's name is Margaret. Yeah, <laughs> right. it's a lovely name. So um, as Margaret, our listeners for QUTX, uh, Exec Insights are quite broad. So I'm sure many people are curious what actually happens in a university and this sort of distinguished title of Vice-Chancellor. So I'm sure a lot of people would actually like to know what a, what a Vice-Chancellor does. Is it similar, for example, to a CEO or does it have some other sort of distinguishing features? There are elements of being a Vice-Chancellor that are very similar to being a CEO. So you're the leader of the organisation, you're the public face, you're responsible for driving the strategy and performance of the organisation. But what uh, distinguishes universities from, from corporations is that in addition to being a corporate entity, we're also a public entity. And so so we have a whole range of uh, obligations and duties and responsibilities that you would have in, a public sec- in any public sector organisation. And then, of course, we have this huge um, cohort of uh, stakeholders, which are our students, our graduates, our alumni and our staff. So it's, co- it's, it's more complicated in many ways uh, than a corporation which has you know, shareholders, customers mm. and, uh, and and staff. Mm. So, so not just one logic of profit but many, many logics. Yeah, yeah. many oh. dimensions. And so, you know, my days are very diverse. They mm. range from opening conferences with international visitors in the morning to uh, uh, dealing with, you know, the, uh, the details of the university budget and then through to, you know, HR matters or media queries, mm. um, staff development, um, meeting with students on other matters. It's a, it's a very diverse role. So no week or, or month is ever the same? Do you Absolutely, think? no. Yeah. no. <laughs> um, so, Margaret, this is my second time around um, at QUT. My first was with our first Vice-Chancellor, which was uh, Dennis Gibson, uh, back in the mid-90s. Um, that dates me a bit, I know. <laughs> but uh, I suppose his role as the first Vice-Chancellor of QUT um, and, the, and sort of the landscape and the pressures that he was facing um, at, is, as a university leader. How is, how is your challenge different from, from Dennis Gibson's, do you think? Well, Dennis had a unique challenge of transforming the institution from the in QIT to QUT, mm-hmm. and so that would have come with a whole range of issues that are quite different to the ones that we're facing today. But in general, if I look back to the late 80s versus today, one of the biggest changes is that no longer is government our biggest stakeholder. So they're neither our biggest funder mm. nor our, uh, our most important stakeholder. They're still quite critical. But we have uh, international students, we have domestic students who are paying fees, which they weren't up until um, 1989. We have uh, alumni, we have 
philanthropists, we have business who we're engaged with both in professional education such as through QTX and also as research partners. So so the mix of our, our stakeholders and our, our, our funding sources and those that we engage with is quite different to what it was in the mid to late 80s. Mm. And how does that make the role of the Vice-Chancellor different? Is it, uh, I know in American universities a lot of the role of the President would be in fundraising. Um, so uh, they have different, um, I suppose, institutional understandings there. But does that make your role um, different from Dennis's role in a fundamental way? I think for all the current vice-chancellors, if you compare them to, say, 30 years ago, we're, we're probably all, almost all are, are doing much more outward-facing mm-hmm. uh, work. And so Melbourne University was the first university to create a provost role and to enable the Vice-Chancellors to spend more time out of the university and it's not surprising that many of us have followed that model Uh, and so, which is the North American model of having the President and then Mm. the Chief Academic Officer. We've got a hybrid of that Mm. uh, but I think the the importance of the Provost role now is is increasing to enable the the, uh, Vice-Chancellor to spend more time outside Mm. the university. And while we say the role of the uni- uh, the role of, of government is not what it was as a stakeholder um, in a university, it's still fairly critical. Um, and I don't think uh, when I think about that time in the nineties, I'm not sure we had as um, we didn't have poli- uh, political certainty, and we don't have it now. <laughs> um, I think perhaps less stable. Would you agree? Um, uh, certainty well, of policy, I suppose. I mean, well, yeah, I think. I mean, the the. The Dawkins was the last, mm. you know, that Dawkins area was 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 revolutionary for Australian higher ed- education. And then, you know, we've had periods of stability subsequent to that and then periods of change. And so our, I do spend quite a bit of time engaging uh, with the federal government and the federal policy environment and that's still absolutely critical. And and also our state government here is in, in and the state government here in Queensland have been tremendously supportive of universities and QUT. So it is it is pretty unstable at the moment because we're in an unstable political situation, mm. and uh, we're we're not sure where that's you know um, mm. what 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 the future will bring, mm. uh, and I suspect some of our political leaders are not so sure either. <laughs> either yeah. So we talk a lot. Um, I was just saying our MBA students have arrived on maths today, so we like to talk about the VUCA world, so volatile, uncertain, mm. complex, and ambiguous. So I suppose that policy settings are, are the U for uncertain, um, like many leaders um, in many sectors facing uh, all kinds of uncertainty, um, and you have to try, I suppose, different strategies and, and just think differently about it. Yeah, and I think one of the important things is to be true to your institutional values and not try and follow um, the, the the whims of government potentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the more you focus on quality outcomes for your students, the re- recruitment of quality staff, uh, your public and international and community engagement, then the, the better you can withstand that uncertainty, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think... And many of the government settings lag anyway, so you've got to be out in front of that with mm. with your own strategies and your own and take charge of your mm. own future, I guess. Which brings us to those strategies. So, um, I mean, each each institution will have its uh, path of adaptation will be unique to them and will probably follow. Um, uh, a, a path from its history but may diverge at a certain point. So um, how is QUT and you as the leader of QUT thinking about how we adapt as we go forward to some of these pressures that we've just outlined? 
Well, I start by saying we've got a fabulous foundation. You know, the University for the Real World, the way that both uh, Dennis Gibson and Peter Coldrake have both positioned and developed the resources of the university has given us an, an amazing foundation and, you know, the trajectory of growth and, and performance of QUT over the last 30 years has been extraordinary. And we've got then very good bones, I think. We've got, you know, strong social sciences, um, uh, been leaders in education, in, in innovative in, in our business education. We've got a big health faculty that positions as well for where many of the jobs will be in the future. And then overlaid with that is our focus on science and technology and design and creative industries. And and so that, that combination is quite unique but also very well positioned for the future. And so uh, not too much change in terms of, you know, the areas that we're in probably won't get too much bigger except in uh, two really critical areas. One is QTX. I hope yes. that it's going to yeah. continue to grow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <good. laughs> I would like to think so. <laughs> and it absolutely fits yeah. with, the you know, the, so much of what you do is engaging with the real world because yeah. you're educating um, people, many of whom are already working. And the second is online. We expect that uh, and with the partnership with uh Oh yes, oh, yes. Uh, that we will mm. we will grow online. There's twenty thousand Queenslanders who study online in other mm. universities in other states, and we'd like to get some of them back home. Well, and we are launching our own online MBA. There's a bit of a plug <laughs> very soon in the early in the 2019. So yeah, watch this space. Yeah. I did notice with interest um, in your biography that um, you had had a, a role on the board of um, Coursera. Um, was that Coursera internationally, or was it? Yes, was it, it was. was. Yes. Yeah. So, so mm. we were the, uh, Melbourne was the first uh, Australian university yes, to join Coursera, yeah. and I did that very. We did that very shortly after I arrived at Melbourne. And so uh, as we were in the sort of second tranche of partners that Coursera developed and so I was I had the great privilege of being on the advisory board for Coursera for three years, which was uh, a wonderful experience firstly because the two founders of Coursera were just so, such clever and yes, interesting people. Yes, it was female. Daphne, Daphne. She, yes, she, she was a uh, she was she was extraordinary, Daphne, and as was Andrew, her partner, and uh, the business partner. And then the second thing was that I was on the advisory board with a mixture of presidents, presidents and provosts from the US and around the world. Mm. And so we were talking about our online strategies as they were talking mm. about theirs, and it and it gave me a, a fabulous network into that group as well. Mm. But, but really, I think the main thing was that. Um, I just learned a lot from, from yeah, Daphne. Yeah, I would think so. And, and, oh, and from, uh, yeah, it's just the way they approached the challenge and yeah. the vision that they had. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So I think the strategies, I can remember for Coursera, they they, um, they like to do partnerships with quite prestigious universities. Yes. Yeah. When I first came to Melbourne, we were, it was in 2012, it was right in the middle of all that um the hype about the avalanche was coming and universities mm. were going to go the way yes. newspapers Papers, and yeah. and what were we going to do. And there was quite a lot of pressure on myself and the Vice-Chancellor and the team to, to do something. And once Coursera announced that they were going to go for, uh, you know, expand to a, a bigger range of partners, we, we were just sitting around with my team and I said, well, why don't we just send them an email? And oh, course, okay. So you took you went on the front foot, <laughs> and uh, and then yeah. uh, you know engaged with Daphne, and we were in that next big group that joined, yeah. and it was, and then that what that did was it got us um, involved with that group of people and made the connections and saw what everyone else was doing, and then it gave us the time 
to build the graduate online strategy behind it, which was had a, had a, actually had a revenue stream mm. and, and uh, deeper roots so into the organisation. So a fast path of adaptation <laughs> just uh, by looking at uh, what your peer yeah, peer groups are doing. Mm. And, you know, our teams from learning environments learnt a lot from dealing with uh, Coursera, our academics that were the early adopters, learned mm. about teaching online. Mm. We developed uh, a capacity in learning analytics. So there are many benefits from, from doing things online and, and at scale. Mm. Yeah, I, I can see the benefits of following that course. I always thought the Coursera um, interface was just so smooth. Oh, it is. Yeah, so smooth and beautiful. <laughs> and it's uh, hard to emulate, actually. Well, yeah. the, the other really interesting thing about Coursera, and that's relevant to your online M- MBA and what we do with OES, is when we looked at where the students came, came from, they came from China and Australia and, and, and mm. Asia. And if I compared that to, say, a colleague at Wharton, they were North America and South mm. America. So mm. even though we we're both offering macroeconomics 101, mm. students want to actually Still study with local. it. Yeah. So <laughs> even if it's online, yeah. It's, it's, a, a, it's, it's, a, it's a bit counterintuitive and I wouldn't mm. have expected that. Yeah, um, and that's, I think, what we've uh, found too uh, and what we're expecting um, yeah. in terms of who might enrol. Um, in our online MBA um, and other online products through QUTX, which brings us to QUTX. So um, I, I had heard a podcast with uh, Drew Gilpin-Faust, who was the immediate past president um, of Harvard, and she spoke about her one Harvard strategy um, and how she was trying to bring the richness of the whole of Harvard um, to the community. So, and she was having a lot of challenges. A lot of, um, she said, a lot of her faculty had like their own alumni programs, and they weren't willing to share. Um, but she could see the value of um, trying to uh, to forge some integration, even though it had some cultural um, change challenges. Um, but we have a similar strategy, maybe slightly different from Harvard, but um, it is through QUTX, which is um, professional and executive education, bringing bringing together the richness of the of research and teaching strength from across the university. Um, so I believe that Melbourne had a similar strategy um, and uh, we're trying to replicate in some way, I think. Well, yeah. in some ways we're ahead of Melbourne oh, and, and in some ways, you know, they're doing some different things. So yeah. uh, so I, I, I'm, not t- I'm very pleased with the way uh, QTX was positioned and developed and, and has been... Um, uh, growing in, in, since I got here, so I'm I'm not so worried about um, uh, our competitors down south for that Good. one. Yeah. Uh, We're not worried either. No, Don't worry about uh, but what I am committed to, and those remarks from Drew uh, uh, highlight that, is I'm absolutely passionate about the teaching research nexus. So, and I say that from someone who ran the National Research Agency mm. that that we have to get greater alignment between what we do in teaching and what we do in research and QUT and that's through all the way through from undergraduate teaching to through to graduate and professional education and so that's really critical to me and to the university and then the other thing that we're doing which is a new development is that in creating the role of um, VP business development uh, which we're just in the market for at the moment uh, We'll bring together what we do with our engagement with alumni and philanthropy, mm-hmm. with what we do with corporate engagement, with what we do with uh, research, uh, commercialisation and business development and QTX obviously will hook into that and be a critical part of that mm-hmm. as will our um, 
bringing together of what we do in the entrepreneurial space into the business school as well. So for people, um, you know, in Brisbane, South East Queensland and beyond, we hope, because we um, have programs that run nationally, um, they can expect to have an easy um, entry, so uh, a portal um, into the university more widely uh, and they can be um, they can be directed to the kinds of um, professional executive education um, that meets their particular needs. So it'll be easy to do business with, I would imagine. <laughs> That's what we're hoping for, I think, yeah. And I think this, uh, as I've gone around the university there and met with various people, the, uh, I'm, I'm often asked about QTX and, and, you know, how committed I am to, to it and how and, um, much the leadership team is behind it and I can say that we're behind it 150%. Yeah, I know, and we're all, we're all very excited for 2019 um, and we're experiencing... Uh, yes, to, to be able to um, play with more people. <laughs> That's what we're hoping for. That'll be fabulous. Yeah. So, um, Margaret, you're a chemist um, by discipline. Um, so, and now you've um, been on a career journey to um, to vice chancellor. So, um, what were the steps along that post, uh, along that path, and um, what? Um, how did you, how did you learn the craft of higher education leadership, and from whom? Well, uh, I. Uh you know, I was spent uh, the early part of my academic career at the University of Wollongong, which was on a, an incredible trajectory then and uh, similar in many ways to QUT. And it had great, again, like QUT, it had stable leadership. It had Ken McKinnon was the most, um, uh, he was the second vice-chancellor, but he really shaped the institution and, and he was quite different. He'd come from... Uh, an education background rather than an academic background, and then Jared Sutton, his successor. So um, uh, they they shaped the leadership of Wollongong and, and had an attitude about developing leaders that was really they took risks on people. So Jared took a risk on me when he appointed me as the Dean of Science when I'd only been head of school for six months and then subsequently the DVC research. And so in my early uh, time as a higher education leader, Jared was the most important. Um, and then uh, when I was in Canberra, I guess my best and strongest mentor was Ian Chubb, mm-hmm. who was the vice chancellor of ANU and subsequently the chief scientist. And then I learned an extraordinary amount from Glyn Davis at Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So in higher education, they were the three most critical. critical. And yeah. Glyn um, is a Queenslander. Yeah. <laughs> we're always pushing Queenslanders. <laughs> Well, he's actually yeah. was in, in, a bit like me. He was an honorary Queenslander an honorary, because well, he, he was a Queenslander for a while. He was was for a long time. Yes, <laughs> Griffith University. Yeah, yeah he was. Yes. I know, and it was quite pivotal in uh, some of the uh, changing the public face of the public sector in Queensland. So we'll, we'll claim him. Um, yes, as we often do. <laughs> um, so uh, I mean, Drew Gulpin Faust to go back to her also talked about the challenges um, of being the first female VC. I suppose in Harvard. Um, there had been many generations of presidents where uh, well, you're actually our third vice chancellor, although there had been leadership of the institution, you know, long before it became a university. But are there particular challenges or things that you bring as the first female VC of QUT? I think not not so much in QUT because I think um, uh, not so much. Let me just start again. I think there are challenges that all female leaders have and they're not either um, particularly accentuated here at QUT where I've had an extraordinary welcome and wonderful support from the Chancellor and the Council and, and the staff. But I think all female leaders have uh, the challenge that, you know, if getting the, you know, the 
uh, if you if you're too strident and too uh, opinionated, then you're the bossy woman or the you know. And then uh, I never ever hear anybody describe a man as too strident, mm. you know. But you get that as a woman. Or if you if you're seen as too nurturing, then you're not tough enough. And mm. so, and you know that uh, that applies to leadership. I think of women. Uh, Generally, it's not particularly um, specific to QUT at all. Mm. And in fact, um, you know, if anything, I think there's been a level of excitement about having a um, someone who's different. But mm. you know, I'm different for a whole range of reasons. Different for a whole range of reasons. So yes, we yeah. embrace diversity of yes. whatever kind. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it must have been. Um, uh, I'm sure the provost role in in uh, University of Melbourne was extremely challenging too. But a new institution, a new state, um, vice chancellor for the first time. I guess it's been a big year for you, Margaret. So how do you how do you unwind and uh, find your balance? Well, um, we have a house out on uh, that's um, at Beachmere on Moreton Bay and um, basically, you know, it's a gorgeous location um, and, uh, you know, my husband comes in and collects me on Friday night when he can and we go out there and um, walk along the bay with the dog and go down to the local cafe and, mm. you know, just chill really, you know, yeah. pot around the house and don't do very much. Don't do very much. Yes. So you don't work on weekends very much? I try. I've always tried to not work on weekends when mm. I can. I, I, You know, having said that, I might sneak the odd email in on Sunday mornings. Mm. Um, but generally I've worked always from as long as I can remember, worked as hard as I can during the week and then tried to keep as much of the weekend free as mm. I can for the family. Mm. And uh, um, But not always, but... You can achieve that this time of year. It gets a bit harder, but I've tried to do that, and I've also tried to model that behaviour for the staff. So I don't send emails on the weekend, uh, for example, and I, I discourage everyone from doing that because uh, I think it's important that that you let people have downtime, and it, it's particularly important for those of us with families. I think. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> um, and with that, I'd say um, thank you so much. This will be our final. Um, uh, Exec Insights podcast episode for 2018. So thank you for finishing us off with such a wonderful note. And um, I hope you have a wonderful downtime over Christmas New Year. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. You can comment on the podcast or make suggestions for future guests at execinsights at qut.edu.au. We would love to hear from you. If you would like more information about professional development for yourself or your team, please search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of programs. I'm your host, Kate Joyner, with sound recording and editing by Lance Scaife-Elliott. See you next time.